Hey, what's up? This is Christopher Stolle of Realm of the Mist Entertainment. The podcast you are listening to is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com. That's s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and information on those shows, as well as information and an ability to contact publicist Steve Joyner for more information. Just go to the website and check out the family, ladies and gentlemen. Until then, enjoy the show. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. I have the distinct pleasure of talking with Ron Mars today, a great comic book writer. And if you're familiar with DC Comics from the 90s, which is my bread and butter, he is definitely going to be somebody you want to listen to. Afterward, please pay attention to the community building part of the show, because I have a new development that hopefully will help spread the word about the show a lot quicker and a lot easier. Let's get started. On mic today, we have Ron Mars. How you doing, good sir? I'm good. Uh, I'm, I'm doing like everybody else is. I'm just at home. <laughs> yeah, we're all kind of in the same boat on that front. Yeah, I'm it's a, a you know it's a little different for everybody else, but this is you know this is the same for me. This is what I've been doing for 30 years. You know, sitting in my house making up things. So I almost feel kind of guilty about. The fact that, uh, you know, this is just standard operating procedure for me. Put you at an advantage. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I have had more than more than a few people contact me and say, hey, you do this work at home thing, right? How does that all how does that work for you? So, um, yeah, I guess, you know, everybody's got to get used to it. Yeah. And I, I truly think that when all this is over. The world as a whole is going to look at this and say, how much can we do from our own homes? How much do we really need to make commutes and offices? And I know some people are going to need to do it, but quite as many as there was before. Sure. I think it's going to be, a you know, obviously, in a lot of ways, it's going to be a different world at the other side. Um, I think it, it's also going to depend on the people that like this and can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, are You know, this isn't everybody. Um, I, I know Certainly, there are even artists and writers that I know that want to that want to get up, leave the house, and go to an go to an office, go somewhere that is a workspace instead of always being at work. It's a you know it's a different kind of mindset, and if you if you're not comfortable with that, um, you know sometimes you got to get up and and go somewhere else. I actually I know a writer, a comic book writer who who actually um, would get up, get ready, go out the front door of his house go around to the back of the house and go in a different door and go into his office because he needed that he needed that separation of work and home. That makes some sense. Now, uh, give, go ahead. I was going to say, it doesn't make sense to me, but okay. Well, <laughs> just, you know. But, you know, whatever whatever you need to do to be able to do this, um, it's it's not for everybody, I think. Uh, and certainly the, the fact that um, you don't see anybody else all day is mm-hmm. is not for everybody i mean if my workspace is the workspace i'm looking at behind you there which is a better library than my local comic book store has i think i could manage that um the the sad the sad truth is that most of that stuff doesn't get read i mean it has been read but there's a whole there's a whole pile on the floor that you can't see that is probably 300 hardcovers and trades maybe 
400 um, that I have yet to dig into. Because when you, you know, when you do this as your job, uh, you tend to spend the time working, not as not not enjoying it as much as you should. Mm-hmm. I always kind of wondered if you get the job, you have to suddenly gear up on years, if not decades worth of backstory and back material. And I know there are archives that exist, but how much time do you get just to actually do they allot you to do that or is you just on your own? Zero. You, uh, I mean, you get, when you do this, when you write comics, you're, you're paid to write. You're not paid to research. You're frankly not even paid to rewrite. So, um, you get paid by the page and, um, whatever you have to do to get that page, uh, is your own time and your own dime. Um, you know, it's, it's not like when I, when I take over, if I, you know, if I'm taking over a book that has, years of continuity and, and, you know, uh, a plethora of history to learn. Um, it's not like I sit down and read every issue that's gone before. Um, I know there are certainly writers that do that, that, that want to have everything, but, um, you know, I read enough that I, I make sure I understand the tone of the book. I make sure I understand what the, what the heart of the book is about. Um, but I don't need to know every detail of a story that happened in 1982. Um, cause I, I ultimately want to tell new stories, not, mm-hmm. not make up stories about stories that were printed 25 years ago. Fair enough. I guess then I should probably acknowledge right off the bat. I was a huge DC reader throughout the whole of the nineties. Oh, good. Well, so I'm very familiar with a lot of your work. You're speaking um, my language then. Yeah. Um, and to people who aren't speaking this language in the early nineties, there was a big shift to put Batman and Superman and Green Lantern through these big changes. And you were helming the Green Lantern story. Sure. I was, I was brought in to tell that Green Lantern story actually. Um, so, you know, the, the big, you know, the big sort of watershed event was the death of Superman, mm-hmm. which, which was ultimately just a story. Um, that's all DC viewed it as, um, Oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to kill Superman. Um, it wasn't an event in that sense. Um, they were just telling a story. And at that time, you know, there were four Superman monthly titles. So you got a Superman story every week and all the, all the stories were coordinated. So it was, it's like reading a weekly Superman comic. Um, pretty great stuff, actually. Uh, I agree. I, you know, I really, really enjoyed that period. I actually got to write some of, write some of the Superman issues, um, after the death of Superman, you know, down the road to, you know, kind of fill in and give, uh, give the regular teams a spell. Um, but, uh, you know, I know I'm friends with a lot of the people that were working on the books at the time and they didn't think it was going to be a big deal. It was just another Superman story. And by the time the word got out and it turned into this media sensation, it was a, it was a big deal. It was a, it was a media driven, um, sensation so and you had people that had, hadn't looked at a comic much less a superman comic you know ever maybe or or certainly since they were kids um hunting down that issue in comic book stores nationwide um so it quickly became a, okay what do we what do we do what's what's the story that comes out of this now and they kind of had to you know scramble to make plans of of what was going to come after that um and Obviously, you had you had a four different Superman come back from uh, come back from the grave, so to speak. Uh, and which one was the real one, and where was where was Superman? And 
it's a really terrific story. And obviously some of those elements have played out in animated films and, um, and Batman versus Superman film and the justice mm-hmm. league film. Um, so the next one up was Batman and, uh, getting his back broken by Bane, uh, which was obviously in a movie as well. Uh, and then, uh, then the next one up in the, in the queue was Green Lantern. And the, the big difference is that, um, you know, the Batman and Superman stories were, uh, were not permanent. Superman didn't stay dead. Batman's back didn't stay broken. Uh, when I was brought in on Green Lantern to, um, to remove Hal Jordan as Green Lantern and create a new Green Lantern, there was no back door. There was no... There was no, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to roll this back in a year. Um, as far as I was ever told and as far as I ever planned, we were just replacing the main character, creating a new one. And that was going to be the book from that point on. Um, and that's the way it's, I, you know, I stayed on the book for seven years after uh, <clears throat> after we removed Hal Jordan in a story called Emerald Twilight and created a new Green Lantern named Kyle Rayner. Um uh, Daryl Banks and I, he was the artist on the book, um, stayed on the book for seven years, which is kind of an unheard of run at this point. That happens very rarely in comics these days. It was a little more common back then. It's, I love the story, by the way. I mean, oh, I, I want to say that right off the record. And I'm surprised that that era of comics and that story in particular, I, w- I was surprised that there were people that disliked it because I had such a positive response from it. Um, I've heard the people would be, and, and I'm not trying to pick on it. I'm just trying to, because when I read it, I thought you had a really great grasp on the character and a really great sense of how to move the events forward. And, well, um, go ahead. you know, comic fans, uh, if there's one thing comics fans hate, it's change. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that comic fans hate is if you don't change anything. So, <laughs> um, so, you know, you're, you uh, with as with anything, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Um, sure, there was a there was a backlash. We were removing a long-standing character uh, from the title and turning him into, if not an outright villain, certainly an anti-hero or an antagonist. And uh, there was a segment of the fan base that was upset about it. Uh, that was to be expected. Certainly, I expected it. Um, I didn't. Uh, I I didn't count on quite the backlash that we had you know i didn't i didn't count on um death threats being mailed to to dc comics um but we got some of those uh but the sales went up sales went up a lot uh and ultimately comics are a business comics are uh you know the publisher loves to create art certainly but you got to sell copies to keep creating art so um I always say comics is a shotgun marriage of uh, art and commerce. So, um, in the in the commerce sense, in the commercial sense, uh, it was a success. We, you know, Green Lantern was not selling great before we took over, and Green Lantern sold really well after we took over. So, um, you know, and certainly the, the a lot of that has to do with the shock of the new and the you know the fact that it was a controversial storyline that got people excited and interested. Um, I do feel like it was a uh, it was a gateway into the DC universe for people of the right age and maybe people who hadn't been uh, reading DC books before. Um, and that was certainly one of the one of the 
one of the ideas I was I was new to DC. I had come over from writing in Marvel. I'd been writing Silver Surfer and Thor, and DC offered me the book, and I came over to to do it. So for me, it was my introduction to the DC universe as well, uh, as a writer certainly, and to a reader as a certain extent. I mean, I grew up as a Marvel kid. I grew up reading mostly Marvel books, except for except for Batman and some Superman and and. Uh, New Teen Titans and the Wolfman Perez era, which uh, was one of my favorite books. Um, so I was always kind of more drawn to the Marvel style of storytelling, which was your heroes were relatable and kind of had feet of clay. Um, and that's what we what that's what we tried to do with Kyle. Kyle was very much kind of patterned after the everyman archetype of, of uh, Spider-Man, Peter Parker, um, where you would be you would hopefully be engaged in his story, whether he was in the superhero suit uh, doing superhero things or whether he was trying to make his rent or get a date for Friday night or whatever more mundane stuff was going in his, going on in his life. So that was that was really the model that that I was pursuing, because um, I felt like if if the editorial mandate was, OK, we're taking Hal Jordan out of the book. um there was no sense in doing a character like Hal Jordan, you know, to replace him. Uh, so Hal was very much a um, iconic character, very much drawn, no pun intended, very much drawn from the archetypes of the 60s. Um, you know, and Hal Jordan's a great character, uh, but he's already a hero before he even gets his Green Lantern. He's a he's a fearless test pilot. He is Chuck Yeager. Uh, before he ever meets a dying alien and gets this uh, gets this ring that can do anything, um, so I wanted somebody to uh, to have to grow into the role of being Green Lantern to to not be a hero already and have to learn on the job how to do it, and that's that's really what we did for a good portion of the run is try to um, try to grow Kyle's character slowly into being able to be part of that heroic lineage. That. I'm really glad you touched on that because that was actually the one point I wanted to swing back to is that everybody, the, the complaint that would get people most passionate was that Green, uh, Abin Sor chose Hal Jordan specifically to take the ring. And when it came time to give it to Kyle, it was like, you'll do. Hey, it, it was the first person there. Gotta be a, just a, just a guy, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that makes sense. Well, it was, uh, to me, I wanted, um, I wanted the job to be overwhelming. I wanted the job to be something that, frankly, he couldn't handle. Um, and and that's that's really my sensibility as a storyteller and, and as a reader, even. Um, you know, and I've used this example before. Like, I, I love North by Northwest. It's a great Hitchcock movie. But one of the reasons I really love it is because uh, Cary Grant's character is not a secret agent. He's not a hero. He's just a regular guy who gets pulled into this situation that is completely beyond him. And he has to figure out, how do I do this? How do I, how do I survive? Um, so to me, that's, there's more dramatic juice there than if your main character is already a hero, if he's already Jack Ryan, say, in the, in the Clancy books. Um, if he knows how to do everything already, uh, that's not quite as intriguing to me personally as showing your hero learning how to do this stuff. 
and for the benefit of anybody who's younger than me considerably, who's looking at like the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern movie, in my childhood, Hal Jordan was portrayed as an older guy, somebody who had already been through the ropes many, many times. He, he got the, the Green Lantern ring at an older age and actually thought as a kid that how cool it was to have, that he had these gray streaks in his hair. It would be really cool if I had those, and time actually <laughs> took care of that quite well. <laughs> it got, yeah, it got all of us, didn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I actually do have the Hal Jordan streaks just by nature, but... Um, but yeah, it's it, that that really does work for me. Is that he was replaced by this very '90s, you know, teen hero type uh, character, which again just it just fits the time period perfectly. Well, it was um, to me it was all about contrast, uh, mm-hmm. and certainly there were there were other Green Lanterns um, who had been in fairly important roles in the series as as time went on. Um, you know, um, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, Alan Scott, who was the original Green Lantern from the 1940s. So there were other characters who had had this mantle, and I wanted to make sure that we weren't we weren't going to be like any of them. That that the character we were creating was going to be different enough that he could stand on his own and and bring another flavor to the buffet table. Um, Green Lantern is one of those is one of those franchises in comics. Mm-hmm. that uh, you get to pick your own, you know, yeah. pretty, for the, for the most part, you know, Batman is Bruce Wayne and Superman is Clark Kent. And kind of, there are very few, um, there are very few sort of franchise level characters where you get to pick. It's usually a, it's usually a very singular entity, even, um, you know, even over on the Marvel side, you know, the, the, uh, Okay, if you don't like Tony Stark, you can at least get James Rhodes as War Machine. But um, to great extent, there's there's one at a time. And with Green Lantern, certainly there was one at a time when when we were uh, on the book with Kyle because that was part of the plan. Was okay, let's let's not have a a 3,600 member Green Lantern Corps. Let's have one guy. Let's have one guy have to do the whole thing by himself. Um, so. Um, yeah, we, you know, we were kind of given free reign to, uh, to turn the franchise on its head, and and we did. Uh, we 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 weren't given other than you know here's what's going to happen in Emerald Twilight, which was given to given to me as a page and a half of notes from DC editorial. Um, there was no real real cohesive. Here's what you're going to do with the character, or here's what your character is going to be like. They really let us make it up as as we went, and um, you know they they really didn't pull us pull us back into the middle of the road. We just you know we made up Kyle, we made up his background and the costume and all that stuff, and they just let us go. That kind of freedom is is intimidating and and fun at the same time. Well, it certainly it certainly wouldn't happen now because sure. you know when when we did this, um, these were just comics for the most part. There was some animation and, you know, there were a couple of movies starting to maybe be done. But th- this was sort of pre-Marvel Cinematic Universe. This was not, um, th- these were not multi-billion dollar properties at that point. Now, of course, these are the, you know, the Marvel and DC universes have been uh, translated into cinema and onto TV. Um, and they are literally multi-billion dollar properties. So 
there's you know there's more than one person looking over your shoulder and making sure you're not you're not breaking the toys that you've been given to play with um and i totally get that i i certainly understand it and it's it's reasonable it's it's the way the world works um you know 25 years ago when we we were handed the keys to green lantern they kind of let us do what we wanted to do and the time time rolls on the mcu becomes a thing the the dollars start rolling into the comic book industry like never before and and about that same time period they start rolling back some of the changes that were made in the 90s do you have any feelings on that do you enjoy watching the ride like everybody else oh yeah i mean look the the comics are different from the movies or different from the tv show are is different from the animation um it's but it's all to me it's all worthy and it's all valid and you get to pick what you like um I, uh, you know, I like everybody else, you know, go to see most, if not all the movies. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of stunned to be living in an era in which everybody across the planet knows who Thanos is. You know, I, I wrote Thanos in the first year of my career at Marvel. Um, and Thanos was an awesome villain and remains an awesome, awesome villain. But, you know, unless you were the, the niche audience of comics uh, and, a, and a regular comic reader, you had no idea who Thanos was. I mean, maybe some people who knew who Dr. Doom was, but, and, and the Joker and Lex Luthor, because they had been in other media previously, but Thanos, nobody knew who Thanos was. Um, and now, you know, I did a, I did a convention appearance in uh, Nairobi, Kenya last year, which, which is a fairly amazing thing in and of itself. It, I could get invited to Kenya to, to sign comic books. Um, and there was, there was more than one person walking around in a Thanos t-shirt in Kenya. And I'm thinking, man, the world has totally caught up to, to our little niche audience. And, and uh, we are, you know, our, our culture is now the mainstream culture, um, which I think is great. Um, it's the, the bigger the tent, the better off we are. I'd agree with that completely. Uh, it's one of the things I've been trying to talk to as many of my guests about is that, you know, fandom at this point, now that we have the world's attention should be about bringing in more people and being welcoming and saying, Hey, if you like Kyle Rayner, that's great. And if you don't, we can find something you do like, don't, we don't have to get people pitted against each other. We've got, yeah. I mean, it, it, we live in an age where, um, we can, you know, we can show anything that you can put in a comic. When I was growing up and the first probably half of my career, or maybe even a little more, like if you wanted to show that stuff, if you wanted to show Galactus descending upon the earth and starting to starting to eat the world, you had to go to a Jack Kirby comic to get that. That was the only place you could get that stuff. Uh, now, of course, um, with technology, with digital special effects, we can show anything in a movie that we can show in a comic. Um, so on the one hand, that makes the comics a little less unique. It makes it makes what we can what we do um, accessible to everybody, which is ultimately a good thing. But, you know, there's a there's a bit of nostalgia for when comics was the only game in town, if you wanted that stuff. <clears throat> so now it's. Um, you know, it's a little different, but I think comics are still, um, 
you know, are still pretty far ahead of most other entertainment mediums in terms of imagination, in terms of the kind of stories we can tell. Uh, because ultimately, comics is <coughs> excuse me, somebody making up somebody making up ideas, somebody making those ideas real on a piece of paper or a, or a digital screen. Um, and in fairly short order, it goes it goes to you guys. It goes to the readers. Um, that's that's a very direct pipeline right into right into the brains of the audience. Um, and um, you can't do that with films. You can't do that with TV. Uh, it has to be a lot more people and a lot more money and a lot longer gestation time to to make something uh, to make something that's going to go into a movie or a TV show. Uh, so I, I still feel in a lot of ways we're still we're still ahead of the curve. Yeah, and that's I never thought of it quite like that. <coughs> but, you know, if you you have a miss with the audience, if you write a comic and the story really turns a sour note, three months later you can write a different story, walk that back a bit, or or maybe just write a better story, and the audience kind of forgives you. If you make a bad movie, that's you don't get another chance for five, six years sometimes. Yeah. You know, there's in comics, there's, there's always one next month. Um, uh, or sometimes even sooner. I think we're, you know, some comics are, uh, ramping up and delivering that delivering content even quicker. Um, because we're, we're kind of a binge culture now. Everybody wants everything at once. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I look, I love movies. I love TV. I love novels, but I, I love comics more than any of them. It's still my, you know, after 30 years, it's still my, my chosen storytelling medium and certainly not the only one that I, that I do stuff in, but I think it's still my favorite that, um, the fact that I can, I can come up with something and come up with something that, uh, exists only in my head and it gets sent off to an artist and the artist, you know, the artist uses his or her skills and makes that thing real, makes it, makes that thing appear, uh, appear on paper or on screen. And we put it in front of the audience that that still is the most magical thing about this to me is that moment when the, the art pages show up in my inbox. Uh, it's still the coolest thing. And the, and the priceless aspect of this whole thing is that, um, yeah, the, the thing that only existed in my head up until this moment is now, is now made concrete, is now made real in front of me. And what I think is great about comics, what makes it work, at least for me, when I read a really great comic, I feel like the artist and the writer managed to put in just enough information to tell me just enough story that I could get what's going on, and then my imagination fills in the rest. Yeah, you fill in, you fill in the gaps. It's it's a it's a little it's a little bit like alchemy. Um, you know, we the creative team comes together and it's writer, artist, colorist, letterer, editor. You know, it's a fairly small group of people. And if, if everything's working the way it should, we, we make something better. We make something bigger than any of us could make individually. Um, we, we pool our talents and come up with something that, um, could not be possible if we were separate. Uh, I, I usually, um, I usually refer to it as, uh, um, it's like a basketball court. Uh, and you know, you're, you're starting five. Everybody does something different. Everybody plays a different position. 
or you know or a jazz quintet everybody's playing a different instrument and everybody in you know in that um in that example is is playing a, a different thing i mean they're playing it different aspects of a song or maybe sometimes playing completely different uh completely different songs and yet somehow it all comes together and everybody gets their moment to shine and everybody does their job and everybody pulls together to to make this whole that is greater um you know the whole is greater than the sum of the parts uh, so to me that's you know it doesn't always happen in a comic there are plenty of comics where that doesn't happen and it's just kind of an assembly line process and you get it done and you move on to the next one but man when it when it works it's just the best thing in the world do you think the process has been made better or worse or faster or or anything by the addition of technology since i guess that really started hitting in in the late 90s well I, you know i think i think there's really two answers um okay ultimately Ultimately, no, because it's still about the talent. It's still about the talent of the writer, the artist, the colorist. And, um, you know, there's, it, it didn't matter if Jack Kirby was drawing with a, you know, with a warm Hershey bar on the back of a, of a you know, of a grocery bag. It was still going to be brilliant because it was Jack Kirby. Um, the tools didn't matter. Uh, so on the one hand, no. It's, it's about the talent of the people involved and how they work together. Uh, on the other hand, the technology allows us to do, to do more um, to some extent, to do it quicker, although we somehow still manage to fill up every moment of that deadline uh, and the book just skins off to press at the last minute anyway. Um, but we find, uh, you know, the, I think the, the coloring now allows us to do things that we couldn't do in the past. Um, the the advent of digital technology allows us to do things we couldn't do in the past. Um, the the fact that everything is digital and we can swap files um, with the press of a button allows us to have a much much wider talent pool. Um, I am as I am as apt to be working with an artist from India or Croatia or South America as I am to be working with a guy that's an hour away. Um, you, the, the, the talent pool, especially the artistic talent pool, is so much wider and deeper now. Um, I think that's a huge boon for the, for the business because we're getting a lot of different influences, we're getting a lot of different styles, um, and we're getting a lot of different voices telling these stories. Uh, so that, to great extent, is, is terrific. And, and I think one of the advantages that we have now is that the medium is certainly continuing to evolve and continuing to grow up. And we are telling different kinds of stories. It's not just Marvel and DC stuff. Um, it's not just superhero stuff. Um, we, we can, you can find virtually any kind of story you want in the American market now. Um, you know, you can, you can find um, horror, science fiction, crime, romance, you know, to, to some extent, the market now looks like it did, you know, more than 50 years ago before the, you know, before the great comics implosion and, uh, and the congressional hearings that decided juvenile delinquency was, was due largely to comics, not kids being kids. Um, so there's, there's a much wider range of the kind of stories being told, which translates into a much wider audience reading comics. Uh, 
the comics audience we have now is much more diverse uh, than I think ever before. Uh, certainly age range, you know, men, women, gay, straight. Uh, there's a comic for everybody out there now. Um, and the comics are a lot more accessible now. Um, you don't have to uh, you don't have to go search out a comic uh, at your local comic shop if that's not your particular flavor. If you just want to go to go to an online source, go to Comicsology when the new comics are released every week, get whatever you want at the press of a button. Uh, and um, I think that's that's a huge boon too. And and people that are not sort of superhero fixated uh, and don't need to go to the you know, aren't going to the local comic shop to get their superhero fix every every Wednesday, or I guess it's partially Tuesdays now too, as as DC gets some books into into stores early. Um, you know, I think all of this stuff pays dividends down the road. Uh, the wider audience that we have now will be the wider range of creators that we have in ten years who are making their own comics. Um, so I think it's just gonna, you know, the 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 seed has been planted in the and the the tree has started to grow, and the branches are are reaching out, and we're getting uh, we're getting more and more people. And as we get more and more people, the branches branches continue to grow because the people that are uh, coming in, and you know, the people that the the kids that are reading uh, Raina Telgemeier stuff now are going to be doing their own comics in ten years, and and stretching their limbs even further. That's that's fantastic. Nothing makes me happier. Than going to say Kickstarter and seeing somebody launch a passion project to have it printed up, and it resembles nothing like a comic I've ever seen. And even if it's not something I want to read, I just like knowing somebody had the ability to say, "I want a comic about this type of person. I've got an artist and a writer. I'm going to make it happen." Yeah, it, it's comics are a very ultimately a very simple medium. You know, you can you can get together with a handful of people and make it happen. Um, that's that's not terribly true for for most other entertainment mediums, but comics are a very bootstrap do-it-yourself kind of thing. And if you um, if you want to do it yourself and put it out as a Kickstarter, and you can make that happen. There are, there are in that in to that extent there are no gatekeepers anymore. If you want to make a comic, go make a comic, put it online, do it as a Kickstarter. You can get it in front of people as long as you have the passion to to make the thing and finish it um you can you can put it in front of the audience and 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 then it's about um cultivating that audience so you can do it again you're mentioning a lot of the works of jack kirby and you know your talks about collaboration and i have to ask are you familiar with the work of pete dore oh yeah yeah yeah. okay did, did his stan and jack comic i mean i had him on a couple episodes back we had such a blast on that that's the kind of thing that i i love watching that because it just shows that you know the fans feedback becomes almost a a, a vicious cycle that people just start be creating literally out of the, the characters now well the you know the the stories of the creators the stories of the founding of comics in the early years you know a lot of that stuff is just fascinating a lot of that stuff is like couldn't make that stuff up People wouldn't believe you. You couldn't. You couldn't make up. You know, two Jewish kids from Cleveland um, coming up with Superman and changing the world. Uh, you know, two two teenagers 
uh, who lived down the street from each other. Um, that's, you know, if if I pitched that story to an editor, they'd say that's not believable. Come up with something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but literally, I mean, I, I was in Cleveland a number of years ago and and went to visit uh, uh, went to visit the houses, went to visit the went to visit the Superman house, uh, the house where Superman was created, and look up at that, you know, at that bedroom window and go, that's that's where it started. Um, wow. It's, uh, and it was, you know, for me, it was kind of like walking on holy ground for, to a, to a certain extent, um, because certainly my life, you know, had, um, had, had they not, had Stephen Schuster not, um, created Superman, the world would obviously be a different place. And I would certainly be doing something different than what I am now. Um, so I really kind of standing in front of that house, which is, is painted, in Superman blue and red. Um, and it's a private house. You can't go in it, but there's, you know, there's Superman curtains in the windows and the, there's a, a placard out front on the, on the fence with a Superman S symbol on it. Um, it really did feel like kind of making the pilgrimage and, uh, was really the, the biggest reason that I went was I felt like I needed to go pay my respects to, um, to that house and those people, uh, for, uh, for what they brought into the world and and how that changed the world for certainly for me personally, but for all of us. Uh, yeah, I remember when Jerry Siegel passed away, the tribute in in D.C. I'm going to forget the exact wording, but it, it basically just showed the Superman symbol and the phrase he taught us to fly. As that was the moment. I mean, you know, there are characters like Peter Pan and whatnot who would fly, but that gave a whole different idea to the idea of a, a person literally having the abilities that nobody else did. And every superhero after that had some various spin-off of that concept. Oh yeah. And, and certainly, you know, the, the, what they, you know, what Jerry and Joe created was certainly derivative of other things was derivative of, uh, John Carter to a certain extent, which is also one of my big influences as, as, as you know, 12 year old kid reading Edgar Rice Burroughs novels. Um, I mean, everything, everything stands on the shoulders of what came before, um, which is, which is, which is fine and lovely, I think. Um, and particularly in comics, uh, we talked about, you know, reading the continuity of issues that came before and all that. Certainly, you know, you, I, as a creator, stand on the shoulders of everybody else that, um, that came before me and, People that came after me are standing on my shoulders to a certain extent. Um, it's a it's a long chain, and we pass it down through the generations. Um, and I think there's um, I think that's a positive. I think that's a um, one of the reasons that it still continues is that um, is that there's such a history of kind of respecting the stories and respecting the the generation that came before you. And, and to swing back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the show, that's why I can't get my head around the people who are just like, I didn't like this comic and everything's ruined. And it's like, yeah, but like everything has always been changing. The idea of, of refreshing these characters has been going on since the very first issue. If you don't like it, sit back and give it a minute. Well, you know, the, the old sawhorses that, um, you know, if you don't like something that happened in a comic, it's like Scottish weather. You know, <clears throat> wait until tomorrow. It's going to be completely different. Um, mm-hmm. Ultimately, these are cyclical stories. And 
um, the uh, certainly superhero comics, the the essence of this stuff is is the illusion of change. I learned that from one of the first editors I worked for is that that superhero comics in specific are about the illusion of change, about showing the audience um, something that's earth-shaking and different, but ultimately you come back to, you know, you come back to square one all the time. Uh, Superman's dead and he, then he's not dead. Batman's is broken and somebody else takes over as Batman, and then Bruce Wayne comes back and he's Batman again. Um, this is all part and parcel of serialized fiction and um, and and stories that that are essentially all middle. I mean, superhero comics in specific are all middle to great extent. There's no, you know, there's there's no last Superman story or last Batman story or last Green Lantern story. It's just, there's just the next story. There's, you know, <clears throat> great stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, superhero comics, to a great extent, have a beginning and a middle. And they just keep going. Um, which is okay uh, because we've had uh, seven, you know, 60, 70, 80 years of middle that you can pick whatever you want. If you want, you know, if you want Dick Grayson, AKA Robin, AKA Nightwing as Batman, there are Batman stories with him in the bat suit. Uh, if you want, uh, if you want Bruce Wayne, well, we got plenty of Bruce Wayne as Batman stories. Um, you can you can seek out your you can seek out your your own flavor and now with with collected editions with digital editions that stuff's that stuff's easily uh, easily graspable uh, you can you can get a hold of most anything certainly at the click of a button um, when I was a kid growing up if you, you know, when I was nine ten eleven years old or whatever I was. Um, Picking comics off a spinner rack at the local deli. Uh, if you didn't, if you didn't get the next issue of Avengers, well, it was gone, and there was really no way to get it. Um, there was some, <clears throat> maybe in the back of a comic, there was a, there was an ad for Mile High Comics or something like that, or Heroes World, um, where you could buy some back issues. But to great extent, you know, comic book stores were not much of a thing. I certainly didn't know comic book stores existed until I was in. I was in college, right? Yeah, didn't know that that was a thing. Um, so, you know, as a kid, you just read what was you read what was available. You read what whatever happened to be on the spinner rack, and if your favorite issue of Avengers or X Men wasn't there, you know, you picked up something else. And I think there was a <clears throat> I've talked about this with some other pros and who who had that same experience of not really having a a comic store that they knew to go to, but just getting getting comics off the spinner rack or in a grocery store, um, there was a certain excitement to going to the store and not knowing what was going to be there. You hoped that the next issue of Avengers drawn by George Perez was going to be there, but if it wasn't, well, maybe you had to settle for an issue of Thor that had a, you know, that had a Jack Kirby cover and John Buscema interiors. I, Got into com I've always remembered being at the comics, but I didn't really get into it until I was about 10. And I didn't hit a comic book store until a couple of years later. But I had ripped out the uh, listings from the, the phone book of every grocery store and convenience store at any place that I thought would sell 
periodical literature and I would just ride my bike in circles around town trying to find something. And like I said, I, sometimes you found it, sometimes you didn't. And it was years until I realized there was a place I could go to get the back issues. Always saw those ads for Mile High Comics. And the first time I went to Colorado, the only stop I could make that I would actually that was like my choice. Like we have to, like we have to hit this place. I have to physically stand in that store because I've been seeing it in ads for 20 years. You are, you are not the first person to tell me that. Um, it's ironically the, the day, the morning before, um, the coronavirus lockdown started to come. It was the morning before, uh, the NBA canceled its games, which was to me the big, you know, like the first, um, their first real, uh-oh, this is a serious thing. When the NBA, like, clears guys off the court and says, we're not playing anymore, that's when everybody stood up stood up and take notice. Um, I met a friend of mine, a guy that I, I coached Little League with. Our sons played Little League ball together. And he was a coach on the same team with me. Um, and I hadn't seen him in a couple of years because uh, our sons ended up going to different uh, junior high schools and and high schools. Um, but, um, he, uh, he gave me a shout and said, Hey, let's, uh, you know, you're around, let's get together. And I, man, that's great. So, um, we sat down at breakfast and he told me about his, his pilgrimage to mile high comics, uh, like a week or two before uh, he said, yeah, as a kid, I, I, you know, I, I always saw those ads and I, I would order some stuff from Mile High Comics, and then he said I had to go to Mile High Comics. And this is the first time he and I had really discussed comics. I mean, he knew what I did, but we didn't really get into into the weeds on any of it. But, you know, the, the place that he really decided he had to go was was Mile High Comics, taking a, a business trip to, to Colorado. And um, he told me that his, you know, the issue that he ended up getting at Mile High Comics was an issue of swamp thing by bernie and and i said you're you're a fan of bernie Wrightson?" he's like yeah i'm like well he was one of my best friends he was like at my wedding he was at my father's <laughs> funeral he's like what are you kidding me <laughs> um so it's just you know just so odd that we had never discussed it and i'm like yeah i got like i've got original pages of stories that i worked with bernie on hanging in my office. You know, I've got a painting by Bernie Wrightson in my living room. Um, so it's just, it's odd. Those, those things that, you know, those, those, those points of, of connection, like here's a guy I've known since literally our kids were in T-ball, uh, in, in minor league ball when they were five and six years old, never came up. Bernie Wrightson never came up. Mile High Comics, none of it ever came up, you know, and here we are literally 10 years later and he's like oh yeah i got this bernie Wrightson comic somehow somehow a lot of people have some sort of comic that they might not even realize but the guy next to him has the same connection it's unreal and i those kind of stories i would love to sit here and chat with you about that and have a whole episode about just that and maybe we should set that up um we can, we can do that because because frankly we're not going anywhere yeah, <laughs> we're we're going to be doing this for a while. So this is this is what passes for a social connection uh, these days. Uh, and look, if if that's if that's the worst thing that's asked of us, I'm I'm totally okay with that.
Agreed. Agreed. Well, while we wrap this up, um, and maybe we'll, we'll pencil in something real soon, where can people keep tabs on your work and on your uh, presence on the internet? Uh, the easiest place is Twitter, where it's just at Ron Mars. Uh, they can also go to ominouspress.com, where I am the editor-in-chief of Ominous Press and lead writer for a bunch of the stuff we do there. So I'm part of that, that publishing concern. Um, and, you know, write some books, edit some books. I'm editing the, uh, the Jim Starlin's Dread Star Returns, which we're doing a Kickstarter for right now. Um, uh, and I say I'm editing Jim Starlin's book. Mostly what I'm doing is Jim sends me the pages and I go, that looks really good, Jim. Keep that up. <laughs> uh, he doesn't need me telling him what to do. Uh, so, uh, and my, and my website is, uh, at Ron Mars, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, at Ron Mars is Twitter. Uh, ronmars.com is a website in serious need of an update and uh, and there are Instagram and Facebook pages for me as well uh, that I don't visit as often but they're there and uh, if somebody wants to reach reach me through Facebook uh, it will eventually get to me as well all that stuff is going to be in the show notes on my website aaronbosick.com so if you happen to miss it or couldn't write it down just go ahead and check that out Ron, thank you so much, and I would love to have you back real soon. Thanks, Aaron. It's a pleasure. We will uh, we will do it again. Um, we have many opportunities. <laughs> Indeed. Take good care. Have a good night. Thanks, you too. I would like to thank Ron for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. I have a really exciting announcement about the show today, and it's going to help you promote it quite a bit. It's going to help me promote it quite a bit. It's going to build our community greatly. One of the big problems for promoting a podcast is that there are so many podcasting platforms out there. I've mentioned that you can get this show on iTunes, you can get it on Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, all the major sources out there. If you want to plug our RSS feed into your player of choice, you can do that too. We're on YouTube. The problem is it's hard to give people one link to point them to our site and have them know what they should put into their player, especially if they're not very technically savvy. I've created a link on a project called Linktree, which allows me to give somebody one link, and that link can then be sent to somebody who can push a button and have whatever link they need sent to them. For example, if I send the same link to two people and one of them is using an Android and one of them is using an iPhone, they can both tap that link and get the results they need to link to our show. They can also get the YouTube version there as well. That link is l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash hungry trilobite. It's basically linktree slash hungry trilobite, but the dot is between the R and the two E's. If you want to promote this show and you don't know what platform somebody's going to read it on, go ahead and send them that link. I would really, really appreciate it. And don't forget... We are also syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a great podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.